2: Welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I am delighted and proud to introduce
0: him as Academy Award winner.
3: And the Oscar goes to...
0: And the Oscar goes to... The winner, it's a tie. And any little girl who's who's practicing their speech on the telly, you
2: never know. Mom, I just want an Oscar. I am Katie Rich. I am by myself today because I have both interviews on today's episode, which is a good problem to have, I would say. Uh, I have two conversations, first with Sammy Birch, the screenwriter of May-December, and Alex Mechanic, who helped develop the story for May-December, and is also Sammy Birch's husband, which is a fascinating trend at this year's Oscars, actually. They are far from the only married couple to both be nominated for Oscars this year, May December is a movie you've heard us talk a lot about since it premiered at Cannes. It has exceptional performances at the middle. It's really incredibly directed by Todd Haynes. And yet it was Sammy and Alex's screenplay that got the film's sole Oscar nomination. I asked them about it and Sammy said it felt like being the last surviving members of an Oregon Trail party. Um, but there's so much to celebrate about it. It's their first screenplay. It really is how they both broke into the industry. And having your first screenplay made into a film by Todd Haynes seems to be something that neither of them has really gotten over. So we got to talk about that, that career process, and just the details of how the film came together. Like, the backstory of Natalie Portman's actress character Elizabeth and the very famous I don't think we have enough hot dogs line Uh, it was really fantastic to talk to both of them and congratulate them on a really well-earned Oscar nomination so let's hear my conversation with Sammy Birch and Alex Mechanic Well, Sammy Birch and Alex Mechanic, thank you so much for joining me. It's uh, a couple of days after the Oscar nominations were announced, and I know it's really the, like, stereotypical question, but I don't know the answer for you guys. I'm dying to know. How did you spend nominations day?
1: We did, I mean, we woke up. We, we fully committed to the experience. <laughs> we woke up at five in the morning. Um, made some tea. Made some tea. It was really, uh, obviously surreal sobbing of course and then oh. um what did we, do? we went to a diner we like bought mugs from the diner oh, to, like
2: commemorative yeah like this is the day we uh-huh. were like
1: this is the day and then we, did you tell them that that no, was why you're buying
2: oh uh, mm, we were just like gotta...
1: two mugs please <laughs>
2: and then <laughs> and we um
1: what else we went out to dinner I mean we talked to everyone in the world I've talked to you know, elementary school classmates and <laughs> uh, just the as wide a net. It's It was so fun and and surreal.
2: I mean, at this point, you guys have done, you know, so much stuff with the entire May December team. And uh, to me, rudely, the Academy didn't get it together and nominate everybody. So you're kind of the representatives of the entire film now. And I would hope that even if there's some disappointment there, that like everyone's really rallying behind you guys as the the representatives of the movie now.
1: Oh, my God. Absolutely. I mean, it is. They're so thrilled. And we've been saying we feel like the remaining party of like, you know, an Oregon Trail expedition, like (laughs) (laughs) we're the only ones who got to this. We're like, wow, it's beautiful. And (laughs) we miss all our friends. Um, It is. But it's yes, of course, everyone's been so excited and, and we're so honored to represent the movie. And We've been on a dream team, you know, that everybody is just the absolute greatest.
2: Well, and it's cool that even though Christine Vachon is nominated for Past Lives and not for May December, that like she's she's, like on a different raft on the river or
4: something. We're so glad that they'll be there. And Pam Koffler.
1: So excited for them. And it's so overdue. I mean, it's. it's, I was shocked to find out that Christine and Pam had never been nominated before. Yeah, they should have been
4: nominated 10 times over at this point.
2: Yeah. And really? so you were there with you um, to, to go back with you guys way back to before this movie was made. And when we were at the Critics Choice Awards together, we talked a little bit about this, that, Sammy, you kind of come from a casting family. Mm-hmm. And I think both of you guys were kind of working on with, with your mom, I think it was, in casting. And, Sammy, you were working in casting until really you started writing the script. Like, I didn't realize how long it had gone. Um what was that like family history of casting like for you? Like what did what did you take from that that you you know have with you still? Uh,
1: well, I don't know if I took as much as I absorbed. Mm. <laughs> a lot. Um because I grew up very much in the waiting room of a casting office and sometimes in the audition room of a casting office. My mom is is a really funny character and and sometimes I go I literally have memories where I was the reader on Mm -hmm. legit (laughs) movies where people are coming in and they're and I'm 10, you know, what I mean, and I'm like, and someone's behind the camera. Um, And sometimes I would sit under her desk and hear, you know, day player audition, you know, people come in, say the line, come in, say the line, you know, like the kind of cyclical, but also, um, just all the strange energy. I mean, if you've ever been, if you've ever auditioned for anything and you know, that horrible feeling in your stomach of being in a waiting room with a bunch of people that all have that feeling. I mean, that's, I was like doing my homework there. (laughs) It's just like that kind of desperate, horrible energy that LA kind of, it kind of exists on a big scale in the city mm. i think of just people who have a hunger and and some of it's sparks greatness and some it's it's just just unending hunger but um but it was a it was a very fun and interesting place to grow up and i respect the the job of casting director so much and i was very lucky on on this film Laura Rosenthal who's worked with Todd for a really long time is such an angel. I mean she's just a genius and so so cool. And um and yeah, when so I went to school for for screenwriting and have been writing this whole time, writing specs this whole time, but at a certain point after college I was temping a lot in New York and uh, my mom moved to the south. She lives in Georgia, Atlanta and she does local casting. So for that she lost her assistant at a certain point and was like, can you get down here on money? You know, I was trained. So then I, (laughs) that started this really funny chapter where I would fly down to first was North Carolina. And like, Work as my mom's assistant on like the Hunger Games out of mm. her her house, so it was like a it was it always felt like Grey Gardens, but if, <laughs> like imagine if the, if they had to like also do the local casting for the Hunger Games, <laughs> that was kind of the vibe. And then when Alex and I started dating, he kind of got absorbed into the into the family too. Of what did you get? You guys, well, we, we you started on, on Iron Man three, Iron Man 3 yeah, mm-hmm. and
4: then did Ant Man and the Nice Guys and one of the Allegiant movies, Diver- oh, yeah. Divergent.
1: Sometimes you know she needs two assistants because it's like she'll be on different projects that overlap and it's too much work for one person. So it's like yeah. I would be on. <laughs> it was um the longest ride. Oh, the longest I ride. Did that yeah. one. Um, Bessie, that was actually a great experience. D Reese is oh, yeah. oh, Bessie. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Alex is actually credited as Woody because. <laughs> Her assistant before him was also named Alex, and it got too confusing. So, Alex, how do, do you want to tell your, your injury story of how you got the name? Yeah,
4: well, I mean, I don't know how many how much detail I should get into here because it's um, a little salacious. But oh. I, I, I kind of, at one point during one of our lunches on Iron Man 3, I squeezed behind a, a chair to go get more chips for my sandwich and I got like a two inch piece of wood in my butt Um, (laughs) it was really it really hurt um and I'm just so happy it wasn't like a rusty piece of metal or something but I had to get (laughs) rushed to like the local hospital by an actor
1: waiting in the room
4: we were like who has painkillers <laughs> yeah, all the actors, were like, <laughs> yeah, And then the, they all raised their hands.
1: Another actor who was coming to audition picked him up, took him to Wendy's, <laughs> came to audition. It was yeah. a, it's a, a family
2: affair. So,
4: so my nickname became Woody. And if you look that up on IMDb, it's there. And if you watch wow. the movies, it's
5: there. Woody Mechanic.
2: Wow.
5: Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the reviews director of Pitchfork. And this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. The festival also features diverse vendors, as well as a specialty record, poster, and craft fairs, and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. terms apply
2: um i i asked about this i swear to get back to may december at some point because (laughs) i feel like it's it's a hollywood movie in a way that i think people kind of look past sometimes like holly because hollywood's really on the fringes of it but you know the way that you know you're watching elizabeth seeing the casting videos like that that knowledge comes through in places and i wonder how that specific experience of being on the casting side of it kind of uh Affected your approach to the industry in this script in particular?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think that um, certainly it affected in a bunch of different ways. Some of them were practical, but um, you know, there are movies that I worked on that were um, true crime. You know, and you're casting these real people, their real names, their real children, their real. You know, like there's this blanket of um, so-called, you know, accuracy that you're going for. And it is disconcerting sometimes. (laughs) Um, But also I think there's just a, a foolhardiness of her character and the whole thing. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's where I think a lot of the humor comes from is this, this search for truth, this Mm -hmm. like, um, (laughs) The, this feeling like she's going to understand this incredibly complicated dynamic in history um, that when it's clearly very hard to understand when you're inside of it,
2: mm-hmm. um,
1: and so yeah, I think yeah, certainly those ecocast links uh, came from personal experience, and and what was even more meta of, of it was the I was sent the links of those kids reading (laughs) of course where they're they're giving their real name and age and then they're giving a fake one because that's the written dialogue so it's like that's so funny that kind of that those ripples never never stopped they're so yeah (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
2: um yeah because i don't think it's like i I think the way that the movie looks at how actors approach real people it's not critical, exactly. But it's just like raising an eyebrow in a way that I've heard people speculate that, you know, there might be people in the industry who want to be like, no, we don't do anything wrong when we come and make these movies. And I think mm-hmm. that the tone that's being balanced there is really interesting. So I don't know if that's something you guys talked about amongst yourselves or with Todd or Natalie or any of the, the process of making the movie. But what? how did you figure out how much you wanted to really needle that or how much of that would be a distraction from the story of the people who are the real part of the story?
1: Well, I think it's it's always been that that mix. Um, you know, I think it it is just as much about um Natalie's character and and the sort of, you know, cannibalistic process that she's going through a, as the couple. But it, it just makes so much sense under Todd's gaze when you think of how he has in his many films, which are so varied, you know, there are these mm. these themes that, that can complete, you know, uh, braid into each other of performance and fame and this creation of identity. And I think with Elizabeth, um, this idea of someone who is incredibly insincere, who can't be normal at a barbecue. I mean, right from <laughs> the beginning, she's really false. Um, and her own her own experience of this trip really trumps any kind of moral or ethical obligation that she's having. I I think that was really from from the beginning felt like a, a rich soil. And yeah, it's 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 definitely part of the the humor and I think as you said like there is an eyebrow raised. I don't mm. think you know, I think taking away completely oh this whole thing is just a you know, a scathing critique of, of the true crime machine, you know, I think certainly that's part of it, or it raises those questions, but it's not, um, definitive
2: necessarily. I think it's, you know, there's a lot of slipperiness. Yeah. When you guys were building the story together, what did, how much do you know about Nora's arc, the, the show that Elizabeth is on? How, (laughs) How deep did you get into what her career has been up to this point?
1: Well, so, I mean, well, I want to say that in mean, the script, Nora's arc was literally. Something that we changed while I happened to be on set visiting. Oh, Um it, w- it was called Animal Hospital, and that was that didn't get cleared. <laughs> and, why, and is there a show called Animal? Oh I I no, there must
4: these, be something. There must be,
1: but it was like there were these like two days of like everyone kind of shouting out names, and it was <laughs> it was me and Sam Lysenko, the production designer, were kind of hit on this idea of. Of Noah's Ark and no, you know we we and then we ran over to Todd, but um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I mean what do we, what do we know? I think we're given clues. This is definitely crappy network hour long. Yeah, she's embarrassed by it. I'm picturing like Grey's Anatomy, but all the patients are. Um, animals. <laughs> animals of all kind, not just dogs. Sometimes there's a cheetah. Sometimes you know, it's like yeah. procedural. That there's an I elephant. It. But there's I guess she's not elephant, like yeah.
2: she's not like Ellen Pompeo, who's like so incredibly successful that she like barely even needs to work. Right? Like she's still striving in a way that she still like wants Ellen something
4: more and to yeah, do absolutely. something a little deeper.
2: Absolutely, yeah. her ambition is
1: you know certainly uh, we always saw her as somebody that that went to Juilliard that, I mean, what's nice Mm -hmm. is that a lot of this kind of came out in a scene that was written in the process, which is that makeup scene that, that wasn't Mm -hmm. always there, but, you know, we always had that background of Elizabeth's character just from the work of building her, but not, none of that really needed to be in the movie. And then when I was asked to write that scene, I went back and looked at these biographies I'd written and it was it felt really nice to get to you know like that she does come from this family of academics and that you know we know she went to Juilliard but she's got this incredible um insecurity of her own ability and mm-hmm. her own ambitions and all of that stuff that's so you know I think yeah, not Ellen Pompeo, certainly not um based on anyone in, in particular, but that and and not to speak ill of crazy oh, yeah, anatomy. No. That's the thing is I know you don't <laughs> want to speak
2: ill of something that <laughs> is, is real. I just
1: mean in in the way that uh, where it's it's definitely popular and it ha- and it's a medical setting. Yeah. Um and I and it's a procedural in that way, but um not, you know, less on the less quality than that for sure.
2: To go back to the time that you guys spent working in um, North Carolina and Atlanta, I'm wondering if the interactions you see Elizabeth having in town as she's going around Savannah is taken from that experience of being in Wilmington and seeing like a celebrity arrive and people kind of freak out. And there's that like that not a clash, but the way that celebrity and reality interact and people don't know what to do with themselves. I'm guessing you guys witnessed that and may have brought that into some of those scenes.
1: You know, I mean, maybe you have different memories. I feel like we were we, – all of our work was always done before the celebrity got to town. Oh, but I, yeah. You know, but I – and we never got to really – you know, you, it was such a funny thing. You just worked on it and then you got and saw the movie and you went, well, that's the movie. <laughs> <laughs> but, um,
4: but certainly we've been around a lot yeah, of actors. Yeah, and in LA, I
1: mean, yeah, yeah. it's – yeah, there's – it's kind of unbelievable the level at which that still exists.
2: Uh Oh, I wanted to ask you guys about the the hot dog scene, which I think became very famous very quickly. And I'm guessing that when you see a moment from your movie kind of go viral, it's always a good thing. But Todd had some really interesting interviews just about how like that is the tone of the movie, but it's not the entire tone of the movie. And mm-hmm. I think, Sammy, you've celebrated how the humor of the movie really works until it doesn't. And people have responded to that. But I wondered mm-hmm. if having that moment taken out of context like, rang in, in any way weird for you of being like, but there's... There's more to that. It's not campy. It's it's a lot of different other things. How did you guys work through that? I was so surprised. I was. I really was. <laughs> yeah. I mean,
1: I, I thought I wasn't that, expecting
4: that line.
1: No, if you had asked me before, what were the lines that maybe were um, people would have liked or said? I was
2: yeah.
1: <laughs> not. Um, that really did take me by surprise. Right from the beginning, that was starting to be online and stuff, so it was interesting. But yeah, I think it, it's so it's so clever of Todd because it it does alert you to a certain language that the the movie is you know or the frequency that it's on that yep. some people are really connected into. Um, and yet, of course, I'm sure I, I can't imagine. For someone that had no context for this movie at all, and they're knowing the basic premise, and then that's the only clip you see, I'm sure that would seem very weird, you know. <laughs> Probably, but I, I've lost complete perspective, so I don't know. But but it's of course it's exciting and and strange, and you know.
4: It also tells you a lot about Gracie's character too, it does. which mm-hmm. I think gets gets overlooked in the hot dog conversation. Yeah. And of course,
1: I think that it really, the completed visual phrase is that there are so many hot dogs on that grill. Yeah. they have a lot. You know, like there's an, an overreaction. <laughs> you know,
4: I actually do that anytime we have a dinner party. So it's true. Oh, it's, but, so is it, yeah, that, that's I always from get life. way too much food, and I'm always worried <laughs> there won't be enough. Yeah, you
2: better have better to have too much than not enough. Is what I would <laughs> always say. Did you, do you guys get the card that Netflix made where you open it and it plays the music?
4: <laughs> that was so, crazy.
2: <laughs> I was. I saw it's sitting near my desk somewhere. I don't think <laughs> I'll ever God. get rid of it. Um, This is kind of jumping all over the timeline a little bit, but I'm curious about the period for you guys when either the movie is being optioned or it's being made, you're coming out of the pandemic, like you've got the script that's really going places, but like you're still kind of anonymous. You're still doing other jobs. You're still trying to do other stuff. So you've made it, but it's not real yet. What is that period like? Like you're taking meetings, people in the industry know who you are. Is it a weird limbo period or does it now just kind of feel like you were kind of making your way upward all the way?
1: I mean, it, it was
2: a I'm trying that period felt really
1: long. Because mm. I mean, up until New York Film Festival, I don't think there was a one single picture of either of us on the internet.
2: Yeah. And Even that it was can. like three there
1: months wasn't. ago. Yeah, like there's there until the writer strike ended, there was really not a sense of um mm. us being in any way public. F- you know, I mean, whatever, as much as a writer can be, but you know, like that, that, that feels very fresh from yeah. like October. Yeah. And the big milestone I think is really was, was when Todd and Natalie were both on in. I met them yeah. both in on a Zoom, much like this in, <laughs> in January of
2: 2021. Okay. Um, so still pretty lockdown y. Like you're in living mm-hmm. in oh, surreality yeah. anyway. Yeah.
1: I didn't meet any of them in person until I was on, I visited Set. Wow. And I, so it was like, you know, Todd and I, we were like, my pen pal, you know, because we had just <laughs> talked a lot on on Zoom and on the phone and on email. Yeah. So, yeah, it was it was always very surreal. The lockdown, the whole thing. I mean, Jessica was that phone call of her and Will wanting to, to produce from Gloria Sanchez. From Gloria Sanchez, we should say, who just, yeah, yeah.
4: Yeah, Jessica so, Obama.
1: Yes, Jessica L. Baum, who's our amazing producer, was the first producer that signed on to this movie. That phone call was the day before Tom Hanks got COVID and everything locked down. Wow. So there was a surreal quality to everything. And and the other thing that happened was I got hired on the Warner Brothers Wile E. Coyote movie. Right. Also, Like Titanic, like the guy getting right in after, like (laughs) right before that. So it was, so all of the pandemic, which, you know, we were very safe, you know, I'm not, uh, whatever. And the, that was like, I started to have, you know, getting the call, oh, Todd Haynes wants to do the movie. You know, I started
2: to have a feeling of, am I actually dead a <laughs> coma because, like a production company can take interest in your script and years can go by or it never oh, gets yeah. made like it's so that that first step is amazing but it doesn't mean that you're going to have Natalie Portman in your movie right like that's an no. incredible next step
1: it it was so
2: incredibly
1: shocking all of the pieces falling together it was like this incredibly miraculous dominoes of you know, Jessica and Will and then Natalie and then Todd and then Julianne and, of course, with Christine and, and Pam yeah. come with Todd. And and then really even more was that he had a movie ahead of ours, which was the Peggy Lee right movie with, with um, Michelle Williams, which sounds amazing. And they were, I think, four or five weeks out from starting to film that. And it fell apart. And he just was like, leapfrogged, let's go, mm-hmm, you know, let's mm-hmm. get down to Savannah. And so all of those things were a lot of lucky green lights for this project but but yeah it was it's been of course very strange having meetings and you know just knowing that this is or after we saw the movie and Mm -hmm. knowing how long it would be for people to really see it there's been a lot of exciting ramping
2: up yeah oh yeah got even after the can premiere and you're like on strike and being like okay we've got a hit What do we do? (laughs) What do we do now? Oh my God! The strike was—I mean,
1: that was really because we knew that they were opening New York Film Festival in September 29th or whatever it was, and so you know June, July, August. You know, as those are ticking by, I'm just praying that it wraps up by then. And then it—it again, very lucky. You know, it it I think it ended on the twenty seventh of mm. September, and then we flew out the twenty eighth, and then it opened on the twenty ninth. And so then the
2: was, actors are still on strike, so you get to be the face of the movie all of a sudden. <laughs>
1: get to yeah. is maybe interesting. <laughs> I was so so nervous, of course. I mean, that first day was was I was on stage with twelve hundred people, audience, <laughs> and sitting next to legendary people who are so incredibly poised and articulate, but. Um, everyone was so nice. I remember talking to Charles right before we flew out, and he was so sweet. He was like, "You're gonna do great," you know. <laughs> <laughs> Very nervous, but yes, it was when they when the actor strike ended and they all got to to come into the. That felt like. Um, you know, when you're on a basketball team, or <laughs> I don't know about that, but yeah. I'm assuming, when, you know, like when Michael Jordan shows up and you're like, we, d- okay, we held the line and now like the
2: yeah. all stars are here. <laughs> now you go on Kelly Clarkson. I'm going to take a step back. And- <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Natalie was great on Kelly Clarkson. I don't know why that stuck Oh in my, my God. Body, but she was wonderful.
1: So funny. I also loved the two of them on Andy. Oh Cohen's my God. Show. Oh, yeah, that oh was my God. It was, 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 really was a housewife thing they did, right? Yes, and yeah. just they're like, there. There was stu- games where they were like answering honestly with little signs, and I thought that was so fun.
4: And Corey Michael Smith was the bartender. Oh,
2: oh yeah. really? He's it's amazing. Like Georgie in the movie. Yeah, he's, he's so brilliant. Amazing. amazing. Um, okay, to wrap it up, to bring it back to you guys being in the spotlight, um, how are you preparing for the Oscars? Have you started? Is this bringing stress into your mind that you didn't have before? <laughs> It's mainly a
1: clothing issue. Is kind of Mm -hmm. what it's. Everything else is really fun, and even the clothes are fun. Yeah, that's fun. Yeah, it's just it's just. um, Netflix makes
4: it so easy. Oh my god, they're just they're just the sweetest, amazing
1: amazing group of people, and yeah, it's it's it feels at this point it's just kind of like, what do they say? gravy.
3: Yeah. It's It's all gravy.
1: Gross gross (laughs) phrase, but it is gravy because um, we're just so honored to be in this, in this group and, and so honored just because the writer's branch gets to vote and that's so cool. And I'm sure I'll wear a
2: cool dress and Alex will look nice. I bought him a bow tie. Ooh. <laughs> well, you also have to dress for the you have to dress for the luncheon first, where it's a different right. dress. I've always found that unnecessarily stressful. Like the luncheon's a whole thing, but it's daytime, so it's not black. Tie. Right. I have mm-hmm. that dress. I oh, have good. that dress. Good. good. Thank good. you. You yeah. might get to talk to Jody Foster. She'll be there too. I mean, you, you might have talked already. You both have a Netflix series. So. <laughs> we haven't yet.
4: We haven't yet. Fingers crossed.
2: And now we're going to hear another conversation that I had with Vem Wenders, who is a legendary director and is the director this year of the Oscar-nominated Perfect Days. Vem Wenders is a German director, as many people know, but Perfect Days is Japan's submission for the International Feature Oscar, which is a really interesting quirk of a really interesting system. And Vem um, Wenders has said he was kind of surprised that Japan, which has a very robust film industry of its own and a strong history at the Oscars, would submit this film from from him, a German director. But it's such a special, unique film. I saw it at the Toronto Film Festival and was really captivated by this deceptively simple story of a man who cleans public toilets in Tokyo, the most beautiful toilets you've ever seen in your life. And doesn't really change and doesn't necessarily learn anything. And that is somehow the point of the movie. Um, So I was really interested to talk to Vim about how that came together and how to make a movie that's that thoughtful and insightful and not boring at all, despite being about really mundane stuff. Uh, Perfect Days will be out in theaters in the U.S. on February 7th, so it's actually a really great time to start thinking about it if you hadn't heard of it before. Uh, Let's hear my conversation with the director of Perfect Days, Vim Vendors so you've been on sort of a world tour with perfect days since can it's it hasn't opened here in the u.s. yet um but around the world it's been playing it's done really well and you've been really traveling and introducing it and meeting people and talking about it what's that been like traveling with a movie uh just one movie for almost a year now
3: well travel started only in the fall I've been traveling before with the other film that was ready at the same time that also was in Ken Anselm. but I only started traveling for perfect days in the fall of twenty three So I'm just about maybe six months into it, not too bad. and uh, okay. I still look forward to going on the extra mile for the Oscars now.
2: yeah. In these different countries that you've been talking to audiences, have you noticed different responses in different countries, or is it pretty universal?
3: In a strange way, Perfect Days is quite universal, and so far as people slowly get into it, doesn't take them right away, they slowly get into r- the routine of our hero, Hirayama, and then it gets quieter and quieter, and there's a few laughs, and, and people get more and more taken in. It's a slow beginning, and then... Mm -hmm. mainly at the end people are quite silent i've been i've had screenings where people are really not saying anything until the very very end of the end credits and then they start applauding but until then they're amazingly quiet
2: Mm.
3: a lot of people are taken by surprise by the movie they just don't expect what they see and i don't know what they're if they've read anything, most of them read it's about toilets and a man who cleans toilets. So <laughs> they ex- I don't know what the expectation is. And if any of them have read any reviews, but of course, most of them don't. And so people are surprised and they are really amazed how much it takes them in.
2: Mm-hmm. When you've talked about the inspirations for the film, it sounds like there were a couple different places, but you had mentioned um, seeing younger people who had kind of chosen to live with less and were kind of deliberately uh, stepping outside of you know what capitalism would require of them. But then you created an older hero based on that. And I was wondering about that switch, if you had ever imagined it being a Hirayama as a younger person, or if it always felt like it needed to be someone older.
3: Well we invented the story for Kuja Kusho. we cast mm. the story before we even wrote it. We wrote it for him, and mm-hmm. I think he was the ideal person to play it and it's fine he's he's a youthful appearance he he's not he, does. he doesn't have give he doesn't give the impression of being an older man he's quite youthful and and a little boyish too, but there's also wisdom in him and and he was my dream cast, so I didn't think of casting it with the younger person. But young people do react to it in a big way. I've had hmm. people like in Los Angeles. I had a number of I didn't know, I don't maybe I did six, seven screenings with audiences in LA. And they were very young people that said, This is the third or fourth time I'm seeing it. I said how wow. come we only had five or six screenings and they're all sold out? Yes, <sighs> yes, we knew we searched them. We were there right away. We clicked in and there are some who have seen it three or four times and it must have had a huge effect on them because they they ask questions that can only come if you've really seen the film several times.
2: Mm-hmm. Does that make you feel optimistic about the future of the world or of movie going that, uh, that younger people are connecting with this
3: movie? I'm happy to begin with, and uh, mm. because that's not always the case. Sometimes you see more gray heads in movie theaters, and that happened to some of my <laughs> movies. I'm I'm quite happy that a young audience is reacting as they do. But I can't say I'm happy for the world. I'm happy for... The state of cinema, that is really what mm. I'm almost jubilant about, that so many young people come to flock into theaters because it seemed to me mm-hmm. right after the pandemic that there was a break in habits for a lot of young people and that theaters and cinema experience was just forgotten and they got used to having everything they needed just on their own mobile phones or on their computers or on their laptops or, or whatever it is, they're, they're having access to streamers, but it took a while and it was reluctant at first, the few first few months when theaters opened were very reluctant, but now, I mean, I can't believe it, and in Italy, the, we now have in three weeks 500,000 people who saw the movie and most of them are young. So that is, for me, a great sign for the state of movie theaters, more than anything else. I cannot, I mean, who am I to say that I'm hopeful for the state of the world? The world keeps contradicting us all the time. But I'm I'm (laughs) genuinely very, very happy that theaters are on their way back.
0: Know that fizzy feeling you get when you read something really good, watch the movie everyone's been talking about, or catch the show the internet can't get over? At the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast, we chase that feeling five times a week. We talk about the buzziest movies, TV, music, books, and more. From lowbrow to highbrow to in between, catch the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Before the pandemic, did you think so much
2: about worrying that people would come out to see your movies? Obviously, everyone wants their movies to get seen. But has it been more of a concern for you since the pandemic and since it seemed like movie going might go away forever?
3: It's not a concern. I mean, you make movies for people to see it. So sometimes you connect big way. Sometimes you do not connect. Sometimes you have a feeling the movie is too late. Sometimes you have a feeling the movie is too early and then... Later mm. on, years later, people say, oh, I just saw that. And did it ever come out? And you say, yes, it came out a few years ago, but you missed it. <laughs> so some people come out at the wrong wrong mo- moment and some, some movies come out at the exact moment. And when that mm-hmm. happens, of course, it's beautiful, but you cannot plan it. I mean, at least I can, and luckily even the studios cannot plan it, otherwise they wouldn't produce any flops so I think nobody can really know how movies are connecting and on what level they're connecting and I think that's a very good thing I mean I'm very happy if a film of mine connects also to young people because in the end that Mm. is the most precious audience and they are the most influential so to speak and but then again you cannot desire it or you cannot want it I mean you always want it but you can I'm not doing anything for my movies to be more successful or not I make them as as good as I can and I have an audience in mind and that's basically my friends and my family and people I know and some of them are young and some of them see the film before I lock picture cut And that is, but I never do test screenings or anything, but I show it to my friends Mm. and they're representative for me.
2: So there are some significant younger characters in the movie. And you've got Takeo Amoto, who's kind of the the assistant character. And, And his character is so different from Hirayama, our main character. And the performance is really different. And I'm wondering about what that was like for you directing those two actors who are really coming from such different sides of the personalities that people can have and making them fit together in a scene. What, what was your part of that?
3: Well, we had Hirayama surrounded by quite a number of young people. As, as his assistant, he's not that young anymore. I'd say he's in his late 20s or maybe even already 30. He's a little bit of a pain in the ass and he talks a lot. <laughs> and he's not quite the worker that Hirayama would like to have as an assistant, I mean, he just do it, does it for the money. He's more interested in his mobile phone than in the work. And Hirayama, as he's not into small talk, doesn't always answer any of any of his assistants' questions. But he has a young girlfriend that Hirayama doesn't know, her, but he meets her, and he's amazed by her. He's amazed how. Quickly, she can check out the music. She's never heard a cassette in her life and she doesn't even know how to put it in the cassette player. And then he sees that she pulls her iPhone and before he knows it, she's singing along because she found the lyrics yeah. and she knows it's Patty Smith. And he doesn't know any of these tools. What does he know? When he takes his young niece, well, I guess Nico is 16 or 17 in his car, Nico asked him if she can have that music on, on, on Spotify, and good old Hirayama thinks it's a shop and <laughs> ask her where that shop is, and she's, she laughs. But So he's not really connected. He doesn't even, I guess, have internet at home. He doesn't even have television. He has his cassettes, and he reads books, and he has an analog camera, so he's old school.
2: So since you said that um, Koji Akusho, you really wrote the role for him, in terms of how the performance took shape, did he kind of have a a more active role in shaping this character than other actors you might have worked with previously?
3: Oh, yes, very much so. First of all, we wrote it for him, so I had him in mind, and I have seen almost all his movies. And I must say I have Mm a (laughs) very deep relationship to the actor because my biggest success of our family Christmas movies goes back to him. I'm mm. As I'm the director in the, in the family for 20 or 30 years, for Christmas we always try to get the whole family to see a movie. And for a long time I was not the oldest generation. There were older people than mine a generation before, but now I am part of the oldest generation. I'm still having mm. to choose the movie. And mainly that is a disaster, because if you try to get three (laughs) generations of people into the same movie, it never works out. It once worked gloriously, and all generations, the young, the middle-aged, the old, they were all happy, and that was Shall We Dance with Koji Akusho. And ever since, I know he has something very special, and he connects, and I've seen his other films and I'm very totally convinced it's his eyes. He's got the most mm. lively and and um, he's doing more with his eyes than other actors. And as Hirayama connects not so much to what he says, but more through what he sees, and slowly but surely the audience sort of gets to see the world through Hirayama's eyes and through his ears. So it's important how he looks and... Every morning, the day starts with him opening his eyes. Yeah. when he gets out of his house, he looks up at the sky. he He's very much about looking. He's not a m- big talker. So I know that Kujia Kusha has the most expressive eyes. and and I know he does he is able to connect several generations. And, as I said, my best Christmas experience with a family program, <laughs> which was always done <laughs> to me. But, the best experience was, "Shall we dance?"
2: yeah, so so that gives you the confidence, maybe, when you're writing the script to have more silence or to to know that you know your lead actor can convey more than you could possibly put on the page.
3: Well, we met for a couple of days before I had to leave Japan again in order to go back home to Berlin. I wasn't there for so long in May of twenty two when we planned the film. And we met, and we talked a little bit, and he knew the toilets. I showed him some the toilets. He said, "I'm going to be prepared when you come back." So he did go and for a few days and learned the craft of cleaning toilets with the professional people who normally do it. He was very well prepared. Nobody needed to explain anything to him anymore. So, and we talked about how I saw his life and we didn't have the apartment yet, so I described the place. I described the minimalism and I described the, the fact that he was quite happy with what he's doing. And, and I also described the fact that I figured Hiriyama in a previous life had been a privileged hmm. person, probably a businessman, probably rich, but that still all had to be written and he was happy with everything I told him. And then we only had a few days before we started shooting, and the most important thing for me was to take him into his apartment and spend some time. We spent one whole day, just the two of us, in the apartment, and imagine how do you live there. And I had found the apartment on my first visit, and it was empty. So it was just an empty tatami room, actually two rooms and a staircase, so... And then the art departments, as they always do, filled it up and when I came back, out of a sudden, instead of an empty room, I was a, had a very full apartment. Mm. So I took Hirayama there and said, Well this is not exactly what I had in mind, what you see here. You know, I told you that this he had minimal possessions, so now it's so full and stuffed, let's mm. take it all out what we don't need. So together we pointed to furnitures and to chairs and to Ooh. tables and said, we don't need that, and we don't need that. And in the end, <laughs> in the, end the art department was sort of horrified because they took the whole truck back with everything, and we just kept the futon, the little shelves for the books and for the cassettes, and a tiny little table for his plans, and everything else went back, so... Finally, the apartment was as empty as I had imagined it, and he also was very happy. He said, now I, now I see. Now, now I can live here, the kind of character that you told, told me about. And then he took initiative in many ways. For instance, in the script we had written on his first day off, he cleans the apartment. I just had that as an indication. So what do I know? how Japanese hmm. people clean a tatami room. I don't know. I've not done it myself. So, And actually asked around in the art department and, and the crew, how do you clean a tatami room? Hmm. And they had several opinions, but nobody really knew. And then Koji came, and we said, so Koji, now we have about an hour to shoot a little scene when you clean your tatami room. How are we going to go about it? I mean, you're not going to have a vacuum cleaner, so how do you think you'll do it? And he said, he thought for a while and said, I need a bucket of water and some old newspapers and a brush. And everybody looked at each other, what's he going to do with a bucket of water and old newspapers and a brush? And even the art department was speechless, but they had to brought the bucket and the water and then we had some old newspapers and and then as always i said let's roll because i had after two or three days with koji agreed mm-hmm. that we were always shooting the rehearsals and well very often we didn't shoot more than the, the rehearsals we had gotten used to that process of almost doing a documentary on a fictional character so and on a documentary you don't rehearse you shoot so we shot so here he comes, brings up the bucket up the stairs with the water and the old newspapers, and and then he takes pages and makes little balls and dips them in the water, and then he throws these little balls around in the room until they're lying everywhere. He had divided the entire paper in little balls of wet paper, and then he took the brush and just moved the little balls of wet papers around, and after a while he put them all back on a shovel, And then he was very happy and said, that's it. That's how my grandmother did it. And nobody had ever seen this. Nobody in the crew had ever seen this, but it was perfectly clean. And it was cheap and a good way to use old newspapers. And we didn't shoot it a second time. And I think the film is playing in Japan now for, well, almost a month. And they have seen... I guess a lot of people have seen his method of cleaning tatami rooms, and I think they're going to introduce this method into many households again, because I think it was altogether forgotten.
2: So it's you don't think that his grandmother invented it, that other people did it? Yeah, so other people's grandmothers probably did it too, and they just didn't know it.
3: Yes, I think it's an old-fashioned way to deal with tatami rooms. makes a lot of sense, because the wet newspaper just sucks mm-hmm. up all the dirt, sucks it out of the out of the material. And it was really clean and it felt clean. The air felt good yeah. afterwards. So that was a it was a beautiful way to clean it. And in many ways he introduced he remembered stuff. And then again he wasn't all that good on dealing with cassettes. So <laughs> he had not he was not familiar with with a way to rewind cassettes you need a pencil mm-hmm. and then you put it through the holes in the cassette and you turn it around and that he had to learn but he was very apt at it and and loved um the trick of doing it with an old pencil
2: yeah i remember that well enough um I'm imagining that for a lot of the audience who is for the audiences who have seen this and talked to you that Hariyama feels inspiring in some way. I think everyone comes out of this movie thinking I could live more like this. And I wonder how that works for you having spent so much time with this character. Has creating Hariyama and creating this film changed anything about the way you're approaching your own life?
3: Well, as you know because you mentioned it, I've seen and talked to a number of young people in New York, in my own city, in London, all over the place, already before the pandemic and during it and afterwards. A lot of young people who were into minimalism and who were almost competitive, who can do with less. And if you if you can't put everything you own into a suitcase, you're not part of the club. And that was, is a great movement. And the beautiful thing about these mainly young people is that they are, that they really have to act together and they're cool, calm and collected and they have a purpose in life much more than people who have mm. all that stuff and need always more stuff. And, and these, pe- these young people who are into reduction are amazingly clear and amazingly have a vision and have an amazing vision of what they want to do with their life. So I like the idea and I started to put it in action in my own life. I've already, during the pandemic, thinned out. I, I mean, I must admit, I'm a terrible collector of everything. I'm a collector <laughs> of books and records and vinyl and and, and rocks and stones. And you yeah. have whatever. I collect everything to my great, the great dismay of my wife, she is not at all a collector. So already <laughs> I started to heal and <laughs> get rid of a lot of stuff. I mean, really amazing stuff. And I still have, I feel, the, I mean, especially now after the movie and after feeling, wow, it's so good to be in a room with nothing like Yorayama's, only with his cassettes and with his photo camera and stuff. So... I still feel I have to, another step to go on now with my own project of reduction. So, and I'm doing it quite happily. And you feel like a whole burden is falling off you, from you. Mm. So position is, I've come to realize, possession and collection is not so good for your soul. And a lot of people, when they see the movie, I also feel a lot of people realize they have that longing also that longing to be masters of their own time. And and Hirayama, I mean, not only does he own little and is happy with it, but he's completely the master of everything he does. He gets up when he wants to get up. He gets all the work done he wants to get done. He reads all the books he reads. He wants to read, he hears the music he wants. He, there's nothing missing in his life. And most people seeing the movie realize they miss so much, and they miss out on so much, or they think they miss out on so much. And and realizing that you can live without missing anything sort of hits hits a nerve for many people. And it's not that we intended it when we wrote the script. I mean, I just had this character in mind and and thought it would be good to talk about such a man after the pandemic, after all, this was the first film I was going to do. After the pandemic, and mm-hmm. in those two years when I wasn't traveling anywhere, me too, I did think that afterwards, we'd all, whole of the whole of humanity would reconsider how we live, and maybe would have some good ideas about sharing and of having less. And I was really convinced that it was impossible that afterwards we we're all going to go on. But not only did we all go on, we also went on more recklessly, and I was a little horrified, I must say. And and only when I came to Japan in May of '22, which happened to be the, to see these toilets, to visit these 15 toilets, to see if they would inspire me to something, it was an open invitation to see these architects and their works the tiny little works. These 15 architects normally build museums and banks and God knows what, and now they build these little things. And I had an invitation to come to Tokyo to see these toilets and maybe be inspired to do little subjects on the architects and their creations. Well, I was in Tokyo and at the same time, the people of Tokyo came back from this long lockdown, the longest in history. And I was so moved by the way that happened. Because in my own city and in my own country, this hadn't happened in a nice way. I mean, when people came out of
2: mm-hmm. the
3: lockdowns, they they were reckless. And the little park where I live in Berlin, it, it disappeared in two weeks because people partied so hard in that park that there was nothing left. And in Tokyo, it was the opposite. People took care, were proud of their common possessions and took care of them and used them respectfully and carefully and and the the sense of the common good which so much was the victim of the pandemic where I live in Japan it felt like people were even more aware that they cherished the common good and that's a good old Mm -hmm. tradition in Japan so and that moved me so much that I thought this is what the movie should be about and it's the right place to do it here and I oh, and I had this vague idea of making a movie about after the pandemic that somehow was about living a little bit differently and why not doing it here and have this caretaker of toilets as our hero so that's how it came about and and the idea of the little documentaries on the architects and the toilets sort of then went down the drain but for better i think even the people who invited me in the first place hoping that I might be inspired to do something about this art project and the architects I think they realized that their hopes were really even in a better place in the story that I suggested to them
2: I imagine those toilets are more famous now than they could have been under any other circumstance so I think I think well, you've done I'm, your part
3: I'm I'm worried a little bit about them because I hope they're not overrun and maybe they have to make extra shifts Mm. of cleaning them. And, but I have friends who visited them not so long ago and they saw quite a number of them. And when they asked me before, which ones should we make sure we see? I said, make sure you see the transparent ones because they're the most fun. And they said those are in (laughs) good shape and they still work. And and they're amazing, and every now and then there's a little line and you, before you can get into it. So, anyway, I, th- I think the toilet's in good shape. And by now That's, there's 17, there's two new ones <laughs> that I don't even know.
2: Oh, you have to go back. Maybe the another the sequel. T- short documentary after that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <No. laughs> that does it for today's interview episode. We'll be back Later this week, talking about so much of the post Oscar nominations landscape of award season. Find us in the meantime at Vanity Fair on social media at VF Awards Insider, and you can find me around the internet at Katie Rich. Our editor and producer, as always, is Brett Fuchs.